There we go. Uh, and if you walk into the dining hall of this convent, Santa Maria del Grazie there in Milan, if you walk into the dining hall, you'll see what's considered one of the most famous paintings in the entire world. It was the painting known as The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. Da Vinci began the mural sometime around 1494-ish and finished it on February 9th, 1498. The Last Supper is, it's not a small painting, it's a huge mural painted on the wall, on the original wall, and it measures about 15 feet 1 inch by 28 feet 10 inches. It's a pretty large painting. Very little of the original is left because it's sort of deteriorated with Uh, the elements and these sort of things. But the painting pictures that final meal of Christ with his 12 apostles, Judas included, who betrayed him. And it sort of captures the scene as da Vinci imagined it from John 13, 21, where Jesus says, one of you will betray me. So the apostles are sort of all talking to each other in the moment. To see the Last Supper, not only do you have to book it well in advance, but they only allow about 25 people to view it at a time, and you only get 15 minutes. 15 minutes, and then you're up. It's about 40 bucks to do that, just to see that one painting. Now, Da Vinci, he knew a few things about drawing and painting and design and other things, of course. He's known as sort of the royal renaissance man, being an inventor and an engineer, and all sorts of things. But it's said that, it is said that when he picked up his brush to paint the face of Christ, that he stopped and he prayed and his hand trembled as he contemplated the glory of Christ and the greatness of Christ. And the hand of this great painter and drawer and this very accomplished man shook and shivered as he thought about How will I paint the face of the Lord Jesus Christ? As he contemplated the God-man and the greatness of this individual. Now, while we don't know da Vinci's heart, of course, such a demeanor is fitting for any of us, for all of us. As we contemplate this individual, the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, this year of, of all times, it's such a great joy and the passion of a believer's heart to gather, to worship to contemplate him, to study him, to meditate on him, to come back to his feet and marinate our minds in the greatness and the glory of Christ, God the Son, Jesus Christ. But there's a dangerous thing about being a human, especially a human being tasked with speaking about, which all, as all of us are for a Christian, uh, and teaching the truths of, of Christ, of God, How do we begin to explain a being who is so far beyond us in glory and in strength and in wisdom and in holiness and in purity and in goodness and in knowledge and in awareness and in control and in supremacy? Where do we even start? Obviously, God, thankfully, has given us his word, so we don't need to go elsewhere. We dare not go elsewhere. To know him in any attempt to, to know, describe Christ apart from accuracy to the Word of God, of course, is always going to be a step below, a skewed and a low and accurate 
view of him. So we look to the word of God to know God. And the most important question of Christianity, of course, and to understand about Christianity is not what are the rules, what are the commands, what's the to-do list, but who is Jesus Christ? That is, that is the question of Christianity, the question of the universe, the question of the ages, the question that we love to revisit this time of year. Who is Jesus Christ? It's a question that no finite man can thoroughly exhaust, but one which our passage dips into a bit this evening. And we'll be looking at this passage, which is considered the climax, climax of the book of Matthew. And verses 13 all the way down to about, oh, 28-ish. But for the meantime, this evening, we'll read verses 13 to 20 and see how far we get in our study. Follow along as I read Matthew 16, verse 13 through 20. God's word says, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on, he- on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Well, a little background on this passage. Jesus is about two and a half years into his ministry here. Two and a half years. He's been having constant interaction with the Pharisees over and over. They hate him. They're rejecting him of all people. The most religious of the land loathe their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, for many reasons, one of which we saw last week in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 16, because they're spiritually blind. They're the spiritually blind par excellence as all humanity are born spiritually blind until God grants them the eyes to see. So it was even more so with them. They had a hardness of heart that was really beyond most people. And Christ has been doing these miracles and showing himself to prove one thing, namely the confession that Peter and the apostles make in Matthew chapter 16. But up until that time, training up until now, training of the disciples is still needed. These disciples will be the future apostles. Really, uh, some of the most important individuals in the planet is they are commissioned and uniquely gifted by Christ to make disciples across the Roman Empire and really, in some sense, start Christianity by the grace of God and the power of Christ. In the meantime, though, they need more training, some more very important lessons, one of which, and the most important of which, happens to be in this text here. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Again, this passage is considered to be the climax in Matthew because everything prior, the works and words of Christ, lead up to it. Lead us also as the reader to say, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? Well, Matthew 16 
13 to 17, the thesis, big idea is this. We'll see from the text. It's also in your bulletin. We'll put it up here. That through his, his works and words, Christ has overwhelmingly demonstrated that he is the Messiah and Son of God sent for our salvation. Through his works and words, Christ has overwhelmingly demonstrated that he is the Messiah and Son of God sent for our salvation. Sort of a big picture of, of the trees here. And then our outline will be this. We'll see from the text five truths. Five truths surrounding the knowledge of Christ. There's no more important thing in Christianity than this. Be careful of, yeah, 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 I know. I know who he is. Remember, he's an infinite being. We never get Christ down. There's always deeper to go. Five truths we'll see from the text surrounding the knowledge of Christ. Number one is this. Knowing Christ is preeminent. Knowing Christ is preeminent in Christianity, which is to say it's the most important thing. It's the priority. Knowing Jesus Christ is preeminent in Christianity. Whether you're a Satan worshiper or, or an atheist or you don't know or whatever it is or or, or you're the Apostle Paul. This is the question before us always. The one that we always ask, meditate on, and deepen in. Who is Christ? Christ wants us to know who he is. Verse 13. Go ahead and look there if you would. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Caesarea Philippi, about 110 miles north of Jerusalem, 25 Miles north of the Sea of Galilee, they're sort of out of the way for a little bit of training for the apostles. And you might think, well, that's such a basic question. It is so essential to who they are and what they'll do. Some valuable time away and Jesus is preparing them for his departure, for his resurrection. He'll go back to heaven for the birth and the beginning of this new organization, which we'll look at in verse 18 next week called the church. So a critical moment in history and in the disciples' lives as these men would go and make disciples. So Christ poses the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man is often a title Jesus uses for himself. It was a messianic title from Daniel seven fourteen. Every person who was a Jew then would know, okay, oh, that's what he's referring to. He's calling himself the Son of Man from Daniel 7. Messianic claim. But the first, th this question reminds us that a first matters in Christianity is not, what do I do? Give me some helpful morals. Give me some stuff to teach my kids so they're good people and get a good job. The, the first question is, who is Christ? It's the preeminent issue. And so look at verse 14. Notice what they say. Verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Again, two and a half years, Jesus has been public, publicly ministering. They've heard lots of sermons and words of great authority. And to accompany that, there have been many miracles and works of great authority. He's been claiming to be the one, the only way to heaven, the judge of all the earth who will determine the eternal destiny of every person. These are the kind of things he's saying. 
And he's doing all of these works and miracles that people might say, wait a second, I remember reading about that, that that the Jews who reverse the Old Testament say, I remember reading about that in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, in Micah. And so everyone knows he's something special, hence sort of these these, uh, somewhat flattering opinions. But there's this multitude of speculation circulating in the Palestinian gossip of that day. Four of which are listed here. Perhaps he's John the Baptist. Recall John the Baptist had had his head cut off. Probably a couple months ago, maybe a little before. Jesus said John the Baptist is the greatest guy ever. He preached a hard-hitting message of repentance. Calling the lukewarm to repent and to live a life that accompanies their profession. Maybe, he's, maybe, maybe this is who Jesus is. Some believe he's Elijah. Elijah, of course, was that powerfully used prophet in the Old Testament about eight centuries before Christ came. Also a a revered guy from the Old Testament, did a lot of miracles, uh, preached a a, a firm message, and very revered in Judaism. Even to this day on some Passover celebrations, they reserve an empty chair for Elijah because he is supposed to be a forerunner of the Messiah. Of course, they're blind. Other opinions. Maybe he's Jeremiah. Jeremiah from the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Why did they say that? Jeremiah was, again, a, a preacher who called the nation to repentance. And he preached to, really, a, a nation. Nobody listened to him. Jeremiah ministered 50 years. Nobody listened to him. Nobody repented. Uh, this is a guy, the, the word of God exalted him. Like in our day, I mean, nobody, everybody would hate him even though God loved him. And he would weep and grieve over the hard-heartedness and, the, and the, the proud arrogance. And he would record some of his weepings, as it were, in Lamentations and Jeremiah. Jesus also, he was known to weep over the, the hardness of heart, the mass arrogance and pride, spiritual pride that there was. Maybe, he's, maybe this is who Jesus is. And others guess that maybe he's one of the prophets of old. But notice these opinions about Christ. No one said, well, he doesn't exist. No one said that. And neither did anyone say, well, he's a real nice moral guy who went around helping people. He's a great teacher, a political and moral revolutionist. No one said such patronizing things about Jesus. Though people 20 centuries removed make those kind of conclusions, those who saw him and even those who hated him said no such thing about him. Even those who were wrong about them understood that he was something very supernatural, though fully man. And those four flattering but wrong opinions all had a couple things in common. You know, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Elijah, what were they? What did they have in common? That these were all guys who were dead. You notice that? Everyone thought he was someone who was dead. Meaning... Even people who didn't believe in Christ as their Lord and Savior still acknowledge this guy is something else. He, he has to be someone risen from the dead. Even so, those opinions were far too low about Christ. They didn't even approach the supremacy and glory of who Christ really is. These are seemingly flattering conjectures 
But speculation will not do, and nor will impersonal confessions. Jesus doesn't bless any of those four ideas. Nothing less than the truth will do. When it comes to knowing God and eternal life, really sincerity and proximity are not enough, are they? They're not enough. Like an 86% right answer about Jesus is a 0% correct answer about Jesus is no Jesus. An almost Jesus is a no Jesus is an unsavable Jesus. Jesus loves us too much to let us operate in sort of um, these vague confessions. Because knowing Christ is preeminent in Christianity. Number two. Moving on. Number two, we, we, we need to personally give an account as to who Christ is. We need to personally give an account as to who Christ is. The, the Christian message is about a real person, more than just a person, with historical events verified by witnesses of all different persuasions and recorded for us in history to make heart and intellectual and life ascension to those things to him by faith. So we must personally give an account, which is why look at verse 15. Fascinating thing. Jesus says, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Why does he, why does he say that? Who do you say that I am? I mean, he's hanging, he's camping with these guys for three years. He's been moving the disciples to this moment as he wants by his love to move all of us to this moment. Thomas, Dr. Robert Thomas and Gundry write, quote, practically every activity was designed to lead his disciples to a conviction about his person. So the young apostles, again, this great task, they need to know reminder too. these guys, these disciples, they're not angelic golden haloed overachieving scholars. These guys are loose cannons. They're blue collar hazardous men, ex thugs. Some of them sketchy, fickle, nervous, overconfident men, many, if not all of them. And Jesus knows that. And he knows the most practical life lesson for these guys is not a to-do list. Okay, guys, don't do that. Like, like show up to stuff, like be reliable, like do what you say, you know, be, be excited and, and, and sort of trust what you're not more important than all that. Who do you say that I am? And he's not talking to individuals who have never studied the Bible. What a question. And the answer, the answer will determine your eternity without exception. Look, we understand that this is scoffed at in our day and treated like a box of popcorn sometimes. But the answer to this question will absolutely determine the eternity of every single person alive. Every person. There are three features I want to show you in this question. First, personally. It's a question, number one, which needs to be settled personally personally. Notice Christ doesn't ask them generally as a crowd, but personally as individuals. He loves us too much to let us fly under the radar of generalities, doesn't he? It's personal. He's not interested in this sort of vague, like, oh, get back to me, 
you know, it's just there's so much neat diversity and, and like Shintoism and Rastafarianism and Neo-Paganism and Druidism and, and Islam and, and Confucianism. Like, you know. Furthermore, we may associate with denominations or churches that correctly answer the question, but that's not enough for Jesus because general association isn't what he's looking for. We're saved by personal assent, embracing a personal God from our hearts. Christ wants them to own it, and he wants you to own it. Have you owned it? Have you owned it? Second, the, the, the question needs to be settled, number two, correctly. Correctly. The question needs to be dealt with personally and correctly. Correctly. Notice he moves from some pretty flattering opinions. I mean, to be a prophet or Jeremiah, that's, you're, you're thought of as pretty high. But that's not enough, right? Precision. Christ is looking for precision. He's a God of precision. That's why we have, I mean, that's why we have 66 books. Talk about precision and commands to believe accurately. God says, I gave you a a brain and intellectual abilities. Despite our, if you've been like me at times, resistance to want to land on things. Precision and and participation trophies are not going to be handed out for this one. He's looking for more than mere words, but sincere belief on personal heartfelt precision. It's very important, biblically. You forfeit salvation. Words matter when it comes to salvation. Salvation depends on it. Correctly. Number three, the question needs to be settled, number three, openly. Openly. Personally, correctly, and openly. You know, he, you know it's, it's funny. He asks them, who do you say that I am? And is he asking because he's ignorant of the information and is hoping to, like, get some new data that he didn't previously know? Of course not. He's omniscient. He knows hearts. Then why is he asking? Because he wants them to own it openly. This is, this is part of what it means to be saved. Matthew 10, a couple quick verses I'll put up here. Jesus says, everyone who confesses me before men, I'll also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. And then Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's the idea of an open, sincere confession of a personal, heartfelt, precise belief on the true God. And so embracing Christ, beloved, it's not a privatized endeavor, is it? You'll be persecuted for it, but it's not a privatized. God understands. Look, God understands that Jesus is so great. He loves you so much. He's so majestic and glorious that public, precise, and open personal belief is very reasonable, and not only reasonable, but absolutely necessary to evidence sincere salvation. And these apostles are going to go preach in some hostile atmospheres. All of them died for their faith because of Christ. 
Who do you say that he is? Have you owned it? It doesn't matter if you've been attending church for 70 years, you know the Bible by heart. Have you owned Christ? Sometimes, especially us who have grown up with the Bible, we can subtly congratulate ourselves for how much we know, when in reality, perhaps, we've hardly dipped our feet into the depth and the vastness of God's infinite ocean of knowing Christ, loving Christ, worshiping Christ, imitating Christ. If we really knew the things of Christ better, we'd have the attitude of a teachable, humble little child that like one of my seminary professors, he'd been a seminary professor for 40 years. Dr. Jim Roscup, he said, gentlemen, I've been a seminary professor for four decades and I feel like I'm just getting to know God sometimes. So where does that put me? It's those who think they know much about Christ who hardly know a thing. Hardly know a thing. The need of the soul is Christ. Jeremiah 9.23, love this verse. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty or the strong man boast of his might or strength. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. Often in life, we're faced with this question. What do I do? What do I do in this life situation? And it's not necessarily the most important question you need to be asking. What do I do? Give me, give me the answer. We don't like not being able to figure stuff out, do we? I don't. But instead, the best answer to life's hardest questions is often Jesus' question. Who am I? If you start there, the, who, the what should I do often comes. Or it doesn't. And you're still well positioned for life because you've answered the question, who am I? Who am I? The what should I do cannot be correctly answered and navigated until we dig deep in who am I about Jesus. We'll never reach the depth of the question. Perhaps some of us here could write like a seminary quality paper on Christology and the hypostatic union and these kind of things. But if you've been like me at times, what does our daily thinking say about this question, who am I? Our daily living, sometimes it betrays the correct confession of Christ. For example, those who are under the crushing burden of supposing that it is by their works that they must earn God's love and get into heaven. They wrongly believe that God is some unforgiving taskmaster taskmaster who's reluctant to forgive. When in reality, Christ says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Salvation is... By faith, through grace, through my grace. Fall at the feet of Christ, declaring you can't do it, and put faith in Christ. Those who will not bow the knee in faith in Jesus and have this arrogant, sort of stiff-armed attitude towards Christ, their lives say, he's not a great Savior. He's not my God and Lord who alone can forgive. I'm greater than he is. Of course, the Bible says every knee is going to bow to him one day, either in joyful thankfulness for undeserved salvation or in sorrowful regretfulness for deserved condemnation. Or perhaps those of us who unravel in the face of discomfort, who struggle with things like moodiness and nervousness and sort of excessive 
emotionalism and getting thrown back and forth at times. Our lives say he's a little God. He's, he's not much of a rock in a stronghold. He's an ocean that blows me around. He's not really trustworthy in discomfort, nor can I rest that he'll do something great in my discomfort. That, that's what those kind of things say. But he's always with us. He's always doing something good in those who are saved, especially in, dis, in discomfort and struggles. Those of us who are, who are proud, proud at heart, who can't invite criticism into our lives. We're too proud to say, hey, how do I need to become more like Christ? What areas do I need to grow in? We see ourselves as pretty great. We get easily irritated, easily offended. Our lives say this. Christ is a small savior. And he maybe saved me from a few things, but frankly, I've helped him out along the way. I don't need him as much as others. Christ, of course, is in a class of his own. And he's a great savior because nothing less than his death could save us. Those of us who become easily distant with certain people who challenge us. Those of us who sort of calculate how we'll get to know people and and, and, and we sort of only get to know people that are, that make me, that are, that are easy to get to know and feel like they're easy to relate to and they make me happy and comfy. Our lives say, this is what our lives say, that Christ came to save us by giving us happy feelings, that he came from heaven to stir up happy sauce in our brains and that he's not really able to do great, great good in me through challenging situations and people. He's not interested in growing me to become like him, but his, his job in saving me was to make me a spiritual Goldilocks. However, Christ came to, to orchestrate circumstances, not for our coziness, but our Christ-likeness. To show us that the problem is us, and he loves us and will conform us to himself. Those of us who are stubborn, Resistant to change, resistant to obey him. We like to play an advocate of the devil. Why would you want to play something of the devil? I, I still don't understand that. Who have a rebellious and obstinate streak. Our lives say that the Christ is sort of like a, like a senile Santa Claus. He's not really the sovereign creator and Lord of all things who, deserve, who deserves reverence and a reverent life and humility and worship. He's just kind of like a soccer referee who I, can, who I can sort of push and punk at times, and I'll kind of get I'll kind of get away with stuff that I want. The Bible teaches though that Christ is the infinite Lord and Savior, deserving of total surrendered loyalty, and therein is where joy is found. Those of us who don't really have much of a passion to deny ourselves, live for Him, who err on the side of sort of favoring ourselves and. Think we're doing some God, like God, some favor when we do a little extra or we make excuses and rationalize our indifference. Our lives say that God is something of minor importance, but there are many other things in life of far greater value and worth. Those of us who struggle with thankfulness and joy and who struggle with being hopeful, our lives say that Christ loves us little. That he's sort of a moody God who loves us sometimes on good days, but not much on others. Or that he's not really in control. He doesn't really have my good in mind. Oh, the Bible says, though, that he holds his people in his hands. John 10. Like, like, a, like a little lamb, Isaiah 40 talks about. He holds us in his bosom. And he doesn't send us into the valley of the shadow of death, but he walks with us through it. 
He'll never leave us. And his love for us can no more change than the event of the crucifixion can ever change. Who do you say that he is? Purpose of that, of going over just that a short little thing like that is just to remind ourselves we always need to deepen in Christ. Who do you say that I am? No one has this down because Christ is infinite. Number three, Christ is the glorious calibration here. Christ is the glorious Messiah and God. It's as simple and profound as this. Christ is the glorious Messiah and God. I hope you see why this is, I mean, this is critical training for these guys you'll read about in the book of Acts. Look at verse 16. But Simon Peter, he answered, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus asks him, he identifies Jesus in two correct, distinct ways, which Jesus will affirm that he's correct. Verse 17, first, he's the Christ. Second, the son of the living God. Let's look at this, this title, the Christ. Let's, let's, let's pull over and park here. The Greek word there, Christ, it simply means the Messiah. That's not like Jesus' last name. You know, it's Messiah. Messiah means the coming one, God's special anointed one. Peter and these future apostles that heard the Bible teaching in synagogue always, I mean, these guys in this day are, were eagerly awaiting the first advent or coming of Messiah, just as we in the church today are anxiously awaiting the what? The second advent or the coming of Christ. They're waiting. They're talking about it. They're looking at these verses. When is he going to come? Let's live in light of this. Now, the Jews understood that this person who is the Messiah would be the most important individual in history. Let me say that again. They knew that the Messiah would be the most important individual, not just in Jewish history, in world history, and not just in first century history, but all centuries of history. The most, hands down, important person in history. That's quite a claim. How could could that be so? How could that be so? Because the Messiah is foretold to be the individual who will do many incredible things. And I want to put it up here because I want us to get this in our mind. Why is, why is the Messiah the most significant individual in history? Just a couple of, of, of quick reasons. I have six there to jot down very briefly. Each one of these could be a sermon. First, because his kingdom reign will grow and never end. From 2 Samuel 7. In other words, his reign, his government, his theocratic rule which will sort of start in a bigger way when he comes again, will never, ever end. Number two, he's the most important because he's existed for eternity, Micah 5.2 says. I mean, that matters. If you have no beginning, you're different than everybody, aren't you? Third, he'll be fully man, yet fully God when he comes, this Messiah, Isaiah 9.6. Fourth, he'll eliminate the penalty and power of sin for all who put faith in him, Isaiah 53. That's huge. And related, he will put his people, those who put faith in him, in right relationship with God, something that the world has never been able to do. And all the world religions have been in some way, for the most part, attempting to do this. How do we know God? How do we get to God? Answer, Messiah. The cross. Six, he'll alter the entire world. 
like the physical elements, as we studied in Revelation 21 a while back, so that sin, death, violence, destruction, and justice are permanently eradicated for all who put faith in him. Places like Psalm 2, Isaiah 9, 35, more and more passages we could cite. So any individual who does those things, I mean, that guy gets to be the most important individual in history. But now the question is, okay, how do we know Jesus is that guy? Follow the logic? Oh, forsake your lesser saviors and lesser things that you put hope and faith in. This guy right here. But how do we know Jesus is this guy? A critical question. Critical, critical question. And we have history to witness to it. First, I'm going to give just a couple quick reasons. I mean, there are hundreds of prophecies of Christ. A couple of very important ones. I'm not going to put them up here. I'm just going to rattle them off real quick. One we read, Isaiah 7, 14. He's going to be, be, he's going to be born of a virgin. Difficult one to pull off. Difficult one to replicate. Christ, his father, uh, Joseph, not his sort of adopted father and Mary both testify to this. The scriptures testify to it. Second, the Messiah was foretold to come from Bethlehem. Micah 5.2, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Third, the Messiah would be born in the family line of King David. 2 Samuel 7, Luke 1.32 and 33, he fulfills it. Fourth, he would miraculously heal I mean, the worst disabilities and diseases that the first century world had to offer. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. And a very important testimony to that fact is that who, what kind of people are even admitting that? His enemies. Yeah, his enemies are even admitting that he did that kind of a, kind of a thing. And Jesus basically eradicates uh, disease and and. and these sort of disabilities temporarily for first century Palestine, doesn't he? Also, as Messiah, he'd stand in for sinners and be punished for our sin. And he would rise from the dead. Very important, the messianic passages foretold that he would, like, always live. Again, that's just a difficult one to do. You line these all up on top of the others. Jesus is him. He's that guy. He's the most important individual in history. So you got two options. We could either ostrich our head or trust in this Messiah. Who do you say that he is? Oh, he's your God. He is the Messiah, friend. He is the Savior. He is the Lord of glory. Worship him. You're safe in this guy. I mean, if he can do that stuff... And if he's done what so far what said would be done, I mean, it's safe to say he's going to do the other stuff. Trust him. Come all the way to him. Don't be almost saved. Don't be an almost believer. Put all your, your, your ducats in him. You can, you can sell the farm for this guy. Come all the way to Christ. Live for him. Trust this Christ. Live for him. Don't just make a time slot for him. You know, on Sunday or like on Tuesday or at Christmas, make your life for him. Who wouldn't want to? A guy like this, a God like this. Oh, be all in for Christ. It's funny, nobody who has ever savingly put their faith in Jesus and followed him has ever died saying, I regret doing that. Nobody. There's not one like epithet 
for eulogy, reading such things. He's the Messiah. And the most important individual in history. Cling to him, friend. What a great time of year, Christmas, to be saved. And to throw yourself on Christ. On his strong, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent arms. And the Messiah. Well, I know some of us can make intellectual assent to him. Throw your life on him, though. There's really no such thing as being fired up about Jesus. That's just normal 101. You just live in light of who he is. What's abnormal is to reject someone like that and be indifferent about someone like that. He's, Jesus said, Peter said, you're the Christ. Second, he said, notice, you're the son of God. That's a big one. That's another just a huge, huge confession. Son of the living God. I like that. Notice that in the text there. The living God. Meaning a God who is existent. A God who doesn't go out of style with cultural and custom and indigenous people groups. A God who isn't confined to sort of folklore, uh, geographically restricted societies that live and die and they're gone and they're in some book. He is the living, existing, remaining, never-ending God. And they knew he was God the Son. The angel said it. It was a critical thing when the angels come in Luke 2. They said, he's the son of God. It was announced later. And they, they knew that they knew to identify him by this because Psalm 2, written several centuries, maybe close to a millennia before Christ came, said the Messiah would be the son of God. And to be the son of God doesn't mean like a biological kid like we have, like he's born, he has an existence. No, it means that he's equal in existence. Very important, when Jesus comes and he's born, that's not the beginning of his existence. It's the beginning of his what? Humanity. Humanity. But he's always existed. He, he said he did. He said, I've always existed. He claimed to be God. He claimed to have no beginning. He claimed to be eternal. Now, what does it mean that he's son of God? The God of the universe is what's called triune. He's a triune God. And it's hard to kind of wrap our head around, which we would expect with a true infinite being. He's, he's not three gods. He's one God, but three persons. So try three persons, yun, one God. It's what's called the Trinity sometimes, if you've heard of it. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons in the Godhead. One God, each is fully God. The God the Father, Son, and the Spirit, they all possess all the attributes of deity, of godness. Fully God, I like what the Westminster Catechism, written by several dozen godly, competent men, it says there be three persons, talking about the Trinity. How many persons in the Godhead? There be three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, or Spirit, and these three are one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal Properties, Jesus being the one distinguished as Jesus is God the Son. God the Son. He's always existed. And the great mystery and glory of Christmas is, I mean, God takes on human nature. How does that work? Without ceasing to be God. He's, he's uncreated. I mean, just thinking about that fact alone just breaks your brain. What does it mean that, that you're, you've always existed, you've never had a beginning? 
You've, you've always been, which is what Jesus says in John eight fifty eight. I've always existed. He's God. So we understand why the venerable Leonardo da Vinci, while his hand shook, when he thought about drawing, I mean, just me, who am I, painting this? He's God. Number four. If we know Christ rightly, number four, it's due. The reason is, and it is due to the sovereign blessing of God in regeneration and illumination. If we know Christ rightly, or savingly, we could say there, it is due. It is because the sovereign blessing of God in regeneration and illumination, verse 17. Very interesting how Jesus responds to Peter's correct saving confession. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, blessed are you. Benediction. Man, you're blessed, Simon Barjona. It just means Simon, Simon the son of Jonah. But why? How did, how did he get the right answer? Because, again, Peter, I mean, he's a fisherman. He's young, uh, 20s-ish. He, he doesn't have more degrees than the guys down in Jerusalem with the hats and, and, and the, the qualifications and the credentials who know way more than him. How come they didn't get it, but Peter did? Is Peter just more intelligent? Not at all. Look at verse 17 again. He says, you're blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father revealed this to you, my father who is in heaven. Why is Peter blessed? Notice Jesus' words very carefully. Look very carefully here. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. So let's ask him questions of the words here. Reveal what to you? This. What's the antecedent? What's antecedent to this? confession the saving confession that and figuring out he is the messiah in god okay well flesh and blood didn't reveal that to peter flesh and blood what is flesh and blood flesh and blood is is a new testament saying it just it means like human ability human wisdom human strength and merit so Jesus is in effect saying Peter and anyone else by extension, human ability and strength alone and intellect alone could not and did not reveal that information to you, namely who I am. Now, obviously he uses mind to think about things, but it's an amazing statement and one which the Bible clearly teaches elsewhere. Human ability and intellect alone is unable to savingly know Jesus. It's like you don't study this enough and then like get it and say, oh, okay, I I got that. Yes, you need to study it. But the Pharisees were pretty well studied and they wanted to kill Jesus. Recall last week's passage in verses 1 through 12, the idea of spiritual blindness. Remember that? Spiritual blindness. The Pharisees were spiritually blind, not because they had insufficient IQ, but because they were dead in sin like all humanity is naturally. A couple verses on that. Recall Psalm 82 They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. 1 Corinthians 2.14. We'll put it up here. 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Natural means 
all people in their natural born state. They don't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he's not able. It's a statement of will and ability. Do you see that? He's not able because they're spiritually discerned. Now, Peter, however, and the apostles and others have been made to see with the eyes of their hearts. Hence, the correct, sincere, saving, personal confession. And hence, their godly lives they'll live in the book of Acts. Like every believer in God's mercy, Peter was the recipient of God's sovereign illumination, consequent of regeneration. Very, very important phrase to correctly understand Christianity. I would encourage you to write that down if you're not familiar with it. Sovereign illumination, consequent of regeneration. Sovereign illumination, consequent of regeneration, which is to say the act of God where God opens the sinner's heart to correctly see and savingly believe in Jesus Christ for who he really is such that we're reconciled to God permanently. Regeneration is the theological term that describes the Holy Spirit's awakening the sinner to put faith in Christ. The lights of the heart turn on. And and regeneration is that one-time thing where you're born by the Spirit. But illumination is that ongoing thing for all believers consequent of regeneration. Once the lights are on, they're on. Illumination is this God-given gift where we... We're able to progressively see and understand and worship Christ as Savior. And we say sovereign because God is the one who does it. He's supreme in power. How does this happen? The power of the Spirit. A couple verses on this. John 3. That which is born of flesh is flesh, John says. Uh, Jesus says in John 3. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. As many as them received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name who were born, not of, notice, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He's talking about regeneration there. You're not able to see and know God savingly just from like the will of man deciding to. You have to be the recipient of regeneration of God's sovereign grace. This is why you hear this phrase, born again. Born again isn't some denomination of Christianity. It comes from those verses there. Born by the Spirit. The Greek literally says, born from above. Every time you're able to accurately see truth from God's Word, savingly as a believer, be, be sure of this. It is because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but God who is in heaven. This is a divine act of heaven to land on you and minister to you and open your heart to see the words of scripture for what they really are and result in worship. Because all who see the words of scripture for what they really are, the word of God, that will result in worship. So being able to savingly know Christ can only happen through the sovereign decision of God. And if that's the case, then the question is, what can I do to be saved and to experience that regeneration if it's all God? What can I do? You can't do anything. You can't do a thing. But you can ask God. 
you sure can ask him. You sure can come to Christ knowing that you need someone qualified according to those messianic credentials. And God, who is a loving, compassionate God, full of mercy and full of kindness, he turns a compassionate ear to those who will ask. Don't be too stubborn and hard-hearted to refrain from asking. Isaiah 55, the word of God says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he'll have compassion on him and he'll abundantly pardon. John six thirty seven. Jesus says, All that the Father give will come to me and those who ever comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Just ask. Jesus will not cast you out. Any who come to him, he will not cast them out. Come to Christ, friend. Don't wait any longer. It's so abundantly clear who he is. If you find yourself unsaved, then maybe you've grown up knowing about Christ or hearing, but you have a dead heart. Just cry out to him that he would open your heart to know him. Whatever the case may be, he paid for all your sin. And this is what we're going to celebrate now here in the communion table. Great privilege and a command. God in the Bible asks his people, and celebrate my death often. Because my death is the way that you are reconciled to me, that your sins are paid for, that you are born again, that you have regeneration. Why, why the table and the cup? Maybe this is the first time you've seen this. The table and the cup, the, upon that are the elements which are symbolic or represent the way in which fallen humanity is forgiven and made right with God and reconciled with God for all eternity. It's the, these things are symbolic of it. By ingesting some juice and bread, you'll not go to heaven. But by savingly believing in what they represent, you certainly will. The bread there represents the body of Christ, which was given for our sins. And the cup represents his blood, which was spilt that day when he was crucified. That day he was crucified. In a minute, I'll, I'll, we'll give us some time. I'll, we'll uh, pause and give you some time to think about Christ and to thank him and be saved if you need to be saved. Uh, but prior to that, very important, on this table... What you see is something representing and symbolizing his body and his blood. What you don't see on the table is like a list with your name on it with the good intentions you've had through life. And there's not a ledger that has your name on it with, with the good moral deeds that you've done. And the try-hardness that you've done. You, you see it out on the table? That's not on the table. Why is that? Because that's not the way that we get forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to God, and go to heaven. It's not by our works. It's by the person, the Messiah, coming in. And he knew, because he's God the Son, he knew God the Father expects and calls for absolute moral holiness and flawless perfection by a human being. And if we fail that, and we all have, 
then the requirement for that is the perfect human sacrifice to remove the penalty for our moral offenses against a holy God. Moral offenses in nature and thought and word and deed and inclination. All of our, the, the body and the blood of Christ just symbolizes penalty for sin. All of our moral violations against God was placed on the cross 2,000 years ago. was placed on Jesus Christ for all who would believe to him for our sins. Him as our sins deserve so that we could be Christ deserve. That's how it all works. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin, Jesus, be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Well, how do I get access to that? I mean, that's such a good deal. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in this Messiah. Bring the, the confession of Peter tonight, dear friend. If you're not willing to be saved, please don't come and partake seeing the great love of Christ that he has for you. But again, it doesn't have to be that way. You can just repent and bow the knee in your heart and ask his forgiveness and he'll save you. Romans 10, 13 says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can be saved right now as we take a few minutes. And for those of us who are believers, just remember this is a time of examination, 1 Corinthians 11 says. Examination. A time of sobering reflection. We're saved by grace alone through faith. But if we have any sin as a believer that we're not willing to repent of, if, if we're holding some grudges against people, we're holding some bitterness, we have some secret sin, and we're not willing to ask God's forgiveness, please don't. The Bible says do not come and partake unworthily. But again, it doesn't have to be that way. You can repent in your heart and humble yourself before a holy God and ask his forgiveness. And he's point, he, in effect, points to the cross and says, you're forgiven. And forgiven. So take some unrushed time. Take some unrushed time. We'll have the band come up here and display for a bit. When you're ready, come grab the cup and the bread, and we'll all partake of it together.